Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, allegations of bullying emerge from behind the goggle box sofas, why the Advertising Standards Authority has clipped Ryanair's wings, and some former editors of the New York Times and the FT club together to make a surprising purchase. Plus, Simon Mayo switches lanes to drive time, Prince Harry accepts damages from the mail on Sunday, and for one DJ, it's pay for play. Until it isn't. And in the media quiz, have we got news for you? It's all to come in today's media podcast. And uh, first of all, apologies that we skipped over our scheduled episode a fortnight ago. Uh, I had COVID, so the the show would have mostly been me spluttering all over the place like Bob Fleming. Uh, But I am pleased to say we are back, back, back. And uh, at my side today, virtually, of course, is uh, Director of Creative Media Partners, Paul Robinson. Hello, Paul. Hi, Ollie. You are gearing up for Kid Screen, I understand, which this time last year was in Miami, uh, and this year is presumably on your laptop like every other thing. Yes, last year, Miami, it was about 20 degrees Celsius and gorgeous. Actually, Kid Screen started this week. The thing is, it's normally a week, but it's now sort of extended to about a month. So in fact, this week, it's already started. Um, I think it's going to be quite good. I mean, MIPCOM did not really work very well in the autumn, I must say. It was a bit of a disaster. But so far, so good. I've got about 30 meetings, so I'm fairly happy. But let's see. Ask me in two weeks. But all the kind of networking stuff, does it just feel a bit like bad Tinder? Like, you know, when you're actually just trying to meet somebody rather than attend a conference. Well, you know, the thing you're saved is this. In that huge networking lounge in the Intercontinental Hotel in Miami, it's all about can you get a sofa and hold it for the day to hold your meetings? And if you're not there by half past eight, breakfast overtakes and you've got nowhere to sit. So I don't miss having to sort of run around, try and spread my stuff around and grab the sofa and hold on to it. So in that sense, my desk is my desk. It, look, it's not the same, but it, it will do. It will do for now. Faraz Osman is here as well, uh, founder of Production House Gold Waller, and our resident Mystic Meg, I suppose I should say, after your success in the prediction special. Whee! Yeah, that was always fun. Well, something that we actually also referenced very quickly in that show uh, was the CBBS commission that you guys have got. And I must say, I was impressed to see that you've got Basement Jacks to do your theme tune. I know. I mean, all my all my own personal teenage dreams are coming true by doing that. So, yeah, Nadia is doing the voiceover from Bake Off and Basement Jacks are doing the title music. I mean, is it for the five-year-olds or is that for you? Well, actually, we went in around the music. We went in thinking that, especially with CBBs, there's a lot of co-viewing. So parents and kids watch together. So anything that we can do where we can give a little bit of parents a, a nod. Um, so, yeah. My little one, who's four years old, has no idea who Basement Jacks is and has no idea why I'm so excited about it. But we know that parents will see it on the credits and go, oh, that's a that's a fun little spot there. Um, but yeah, we've been thrilled to I work with I do stick around for Grace's Amazing Machines to hear the Justin Hawkins theme. Absolutely. I mean, it was inspired by that. If you, could, if you can't beat that, then what's the point of being in the game? But you can have an exclusive. Do you want an exclusive? I can give you an exclusive. I've never knowingly turned down an exclusive. Well, we've just been given a, a TX date. So we'll be on air on the 15th of February at 420 on CBBS, so that's when you can catch the that's show. That's the exclusive, a transmission date. That's not an exclusive, that's just promotion for us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and finally, making her media podcast debut, it is creative director of Zinc Media, Emma Hinley. Hi, Emma. Hi. Welcome. You have been in documentary telly forever. Um, <laughs> I wonder, with all that experience, how the last year has felt by comparison. It must be very different trying to put films together during the pandemic. It's strange because I've been busier than I have normally. So it's been it's been a really weird one. And I think the thing I've found the hardest is not 
being in the same space as my colleagues, that's been the hardest thing, really. So on shoots, it's been fun because I've been with people. And even though you've had to be socially distanced and all of those things, I've really missed chatting to colleagues over the coffee machine. And I noticed as well, you've got a new commission uh, underway, a collaboration with Lucy Worsley, who you've worked with a lot, uh, which is called Blitz Spirit and going to be on BBC One. Yes. Now, interestingly... Emma, the first show I ever worked on in telly was called Blitz Spirit. It was for ITV London in 2003. Really? Um, And I was a junior researcher on that. And it's funny because that title, you understand why it gets commissioned, because it's what people think about the Blitz. But immediately you're fighting against people's perceptions, aren't you? It's a big cliche, really. It is a complete cliche. I mean, it is and it isn't. I mean, what's interesting is it wasn't called Blitz Spirit originally. It was just the Blitz. Um... And what and the, the title kind of emerged out of making the film, really. I think the thing about about the film that's extraordinary is the timing of it, because COVID and people having to deal with death on a very daily basis um, suddenly felt very prescient in terms of blitz and also the way that the government were dealing with the public messaging and the reliance on ordinary people to step up and and volunteer and and put themselves in in very dangerous places. Um, it felt so uh, prescient is a word that's used a lot, but honestly, it just, it's extraordinary. And we had, you know, shots of people in masks wandering around London with Lucy in the background. And, um, yeah, no, the timing of that is, is quite extraordinary. And the shooting was difficult because we were in mid lockdown, not, not the kind of lockdown we've got going on at the moment, but nevertheless, it was very difficult to, to shoot. Well, let's kick off with some behind the scenes telly news. Uh, and a member of the crew on Channel 4's Gogglebox says that working conditions on the show are, quote, inhumane. Uh, we know this thanks to a report by a friend of the pod, Jim Waterson at The Guardian. Uh, Faraz, what exactly was alleged by this uh, anonymous, recently departed member of the production team? Um, my understanding is that there's been a number of different allegations, including um, people having to work extremely long hours in, in edits. Um, you know, obviously, there's the kind of unsatisfaction from the higher ups, which has caused the shouting and various bullying, bullying allegations from there. Um, and it just seems that it's a it's a production where the pressure was um, just really piled on. I want to say junior members of staff, but I don't think it's junior members of staff. It's kind of everyone that wasn't at the top level seems to have really got it in the neck when it comes to that production, which just frankly is, I, I just personally don't get it. I think that when you've got a show that's that big, why it doesn't have all the resources to to make sure that everyone can run that production properly is beyond me. From my own personal perspective, I joined this industry because I thought it was meant to be fun. And I think that once you get into it, because of the freelance culture, because of the way that there's so much pressure and, and over the years, because times and budgets have been squeezed um it's it's just become more and more stressful to to get things done and and also on top of that there's been a huge amount of egos you know creative egos exist in this industry as we as we all know and sometimes that they can kind of tip over into being a an incredibly toxic workplace um and i just think it's i just think it's really really sad that we have to wait until all of this outrage comes out and people have to make kind of complaints anonymously um before anything's been done about yeah. it we should stress that they are complaints from anonymous sources. Uh, Studio Lambert gave The Guardian a statement saying it takes the welfare of its teams extremely seriously across all its productions and has a number of measures in place to encourage people to come forward with any concerns they may have, as well as support systems for a range of issues. Uh, Emma, in the last 24 hours, Beck2 has joined in as well, haven't they? What, what have they been saying? They've set up their own inquiry and I think they're looking, they want to look much more broadly at, at the industry as a whole rather than trying you know trying to just focus on on gogglebox but i think gogglebox is a really good example because studio lambert is a very you know wealthy well established company it's a very well established brand they've been making it for years um i mean obviously there's the very fast turnaround on it which would put enormous pressure on on rolling those shows out but nevertheless it's a brand that's existed for a really long time and so by the time after sort of series, whatever, you would think that you would have your production process fairly well oiled and organised. I just think it's about the culture of, of companies that can just arise. And as Faraz said, you know, when you've got senior people who behave badly, it becomes very, very difficult for junior people to, to call them out. Well, it becomes very difficult, doesn't it, Paul, when it's a hit? I mean, that's kind of what we learn here, isn't it? Because 
I know from friends in the industry as well that you actually take the job with a spring in your step as a freelancer because you think, well, I'll get through it for six or 12 weeks and then I have a terrestrial credit on my CV and it's well paid and there's no point making a fuss about it. I'll just do it because it's Gogglebox and it's a hit. Sort of unlikely that Studio Lambert and Channel 4 were completely unaware of the gossip everyone else was completely cognizant of. Yeah, it's been known in the industry for quite a long time, and I absolutely would not believe they were not unaware. And of course, unfortunately, that culture of coming in for 12 weeks or 13 weeks and going away and saying nothing encourages the practice to continue because it never actually gets surfaced until, for example, it gets surfaced now. I think this, in a way, this is not a new story. And indeed, on this very podcast, we've discussed this topic several times in the past, and we've talked about it not just in the context of TV production, but in other sectors in the media industry, particularly in the newspaper industry, for example, where um, there's almost been an acceptance in the past by subs pushing people on stories, pushing them to get more copy out and so on. I think, um, you know, any industry that permits bullying by management should not be allowed to do so. It's just not an acceptable practice. You know, we all understand that deadlines can be tight. We all understand that maybe resources are tight. That's something you have to sort of live with. But how you handle that pressure or how you deliver that pressure is difficult. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a manager setting a deadline, but you don't shout at people. You can always discuss things in a calm, rational way. And at least then you can either say, look, either it can be done or it can't. So This sort of shouting culture, bullying culture, unacceptable, but it does seem to be it's almost become endemic and almost accepted in certain sections of the media. And it really has to change. It really does. Faraz, what do you think Channel 4 might be thinking about this internally? Because you could argue there's a bit of a double standard in the sense that they they have a hotline, like a production welfare hotline, so you can out your employer if you think there's a problem. But it's Channel 4 who are commissioning these shows with these budgets, with these time constraints, with these executives, delegating the production to an independent production company, because that's what they do. But it does mean they don't have any direct knowledge of what is possible to make within those constraints. They just delegate it to that company, say, go ahead and make it. And then say, oh, call us if there's any problems. But I mean, you could argue that the problems weren't ironed out in the commissioning process. Well, I think the part of the issue is, is this kind of whole sense of take it or leave it and it goes it goes all the way down to the most junior members of staff and all the way up to getting commissions themselves it's a bit like you know if you if if you want to make a production this is your budget this is your timelines this is when you've got to deliver it take it or leave it and production companies are all scrambling to get work you know particularly to see the broadcast industry is is seeing fewer slots and fewer budgets and more production companies trying to get that work so everyone's scrambling for it and then you get to um you know freelance level where you're starting to hire people and it's again take it or leave it you can work on this job these are the hours these are the things you're going to have to do this is the 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 uh, the climate of the and the culture that is well known but if you don't want to work on this then as exactly as you say then you can go somewhere else and work and 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 that kind of is creating this endemic cycle of, of you know, it's really toxic culture. Um, and I would argue that it goes all the way up to broadcasters. I'm, I'm sure that there's been issues at broadcasters as well that is uh, that, 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 that mirrors this because it's the same people that go further and further up the ladder um, who, who do push these things to, to, to breaking point. And if they can get away with it, then, then they get rewarded by, by bigger jobs and bigger pay packets. And my hope is, is that like, this has got to be a sense that, we don't accept this happening. And then, you know, we, without kind of drawing um, inconvenient parallels, but, you know, the racial reckoning that we've had where people have gone, we need to start conversa- having a conversation about diversity and about how, how diverse this, um, this industry is. And, and even that's going backwards. We continually be, seem to be having to kind of pull up a mirror at our own industry. We're, we're the first to criticise when, you know, when there's accusations of bullying within the cabinet or w- within kind of, you know, major workplaces. When it happens in our own industry, if we don't keep our house in order, then it means that our programming is going gonna, is gonna to be problematic and no one's going to trust it anyway. So I think that, like, look, I, I don't know if there's going to be a, a straightforward solution to it because the industry is such a mixed ecology. But I think that as a whole industry, everyone has to stand up and say, look, we don't do this. And we as a production company say, you know, you work in a safe and tolerant workplace. And if there's a problem, you let us know about it. Um, and we shouldn't lean on the broadcasters trying to find trying to find solutions for us. It has to be within no, us. Emma, is the truth that some of the executives at a senior level kind of feel like, well, I was treated like shit when I started in the industry. That's what you put up with. That's that's the industry we're in. So, you know, I don't really feel sorry for these people. No, I think I think bullies are bullies. In whatever workplace you're in, a bully is a bully is a bully. 
And the unfortunate thing is that those people behave in the way that they do because they've been allowed to get away with it. Because largely because other senior members of staff, often they're not present when that's going on. And also there isn't enough trust built with junior members of staff whereby they feel that they can report back. Um, But it's also a general, I think it's a general thing around a culture of a company that you treat people as you would expect to be treated. You don't, I have a rule at work. I do not shout at anybody at work because that's what I do with my partner and my kids. (laughs) You know, that's, you just don't. There's no place for raising your voice at work. So I think that kind of culture where people feel that they can shout at people and be humiliating towards people, that just has to go. Absolutely has to go. And, And bullies need to be called out, really. I think what's quite interesting about it compared to what perhaps the general public might assume is that I I guess people might think, I mean, you're right, you said that Gogglebox in particular, to take that example, is quite a stressful environment, you know, they're turning over quickly. But still, I think the general public might assume it's essentially a light entertainment program that would be fun to work on. Whereas something like the news, that would be stressful. And the truth is, you know, it's the serious documentaries that are fun, isn't it? And And the comedy programs tend to be very hard. Oh my God, comedians. Wow. Comedians are the most <laughs> serious, the most serious people that have the, you know, the least sense of humor in my, in my experience as on a one-to-one basis. I just think it's a, it's a cultural thing where, you know, people think, oh, telly's a glamorous industry and, oh, you know, all really artistic in some sort of way. Therefore, we get passionate about our ideas. Passion is great. Passion is really good. Let's be really, really passionate about the ideas we're making, but not at the expense of other people. There is never, ever, ever an excuse for shouting at another member of staff, whether they're a peer, whether they're somebody you're managing. There's just no excuse in my book anyway. I'm just curious, Paul, whether you'd agree that that's a cliche in uh, radio as well, that, you know, perhaps the sort of current affairs scenarios can be easier workplaces than the seemingly light and frothy ones? I don't know. I mean, look, I've worked in commercial radio and BBC radio at national and local level. When I started in commercial radio, you know, too many years ago to mention, I worked my ass off. I worked every hour that came and I didn't mind doing that, but I was never shouted at or bullied. I mean, I agree with Emma completely. I think that's the point. I don't mind working hard. And when you start, you expect to work hard. And in any production, there are occasions when you may have to work late or weekends. That's just normal. But, you know, you accept that. But on on the other hand, there's a bit of give and take, you know, if you want Friday afternoon, you have to get Friday afternoon off. It's the shouting and the way you handle it that's unacceptable. And it just has to be called out. And I, I disagree with Emma, basically, we must not permit it. Faraz, do you think it actually puts people off uh, joining the TV industry, though? Because the reason these kinds of conditions have been able to exist in the first place is because it's oversubscribed and lots of people want to do it. It doesn't appear to be putting people off. What I would say is it should be putting commissioners off and it should be putting broadcasters off. Like, you know, if you know that that company has got that sort of culture and, and it hasn't been fixed, then then that should be a flag of, of whether or not that's a company that you want to commission. It doesn't matter how good the idea is. And I know that we always say, oh, the idea is king and that's what always gets commissioned. But we need to make a, a really su- serious judgment call about whether or not we want to continue rewarding places that have that sort of culture that haven't got their house in order and i think to your earlier point about whether or not this is a this is a systematic issue where people were bullied earlier so they want to kind of like replicate that behavior i mean i see it in a completely different way you know i had a hard time when i was a junior member of staff and i don't want anybody working for me to ever feel the same way so we are trying to create a company culture where people will leave the company and and advocate and say you know what they're a really good strong company to work for because at the end of the day people that we work with we'll end up getting more and more senior and if we can create a culture that people go we know that those guys are the good guys then the hope is is that you know that 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 will help our company grow and and the opposite should be true um so i i really do hope that this is going to cause like you know a ripple effect down the industry where where people are going to go you know what i'm not going to work with that person anymore not because they they didn't work hard enough and and therefore the powerful people badmouth them but because the people on the other end of of the scale were called out for the behaviour they had. Emma, finally on this, I know you wanted to jump in. Yeah, I, do. I mean, I, I agree completely with, with, with Faraz. You know, it's how it, you, you should treat people how you expect to be treated yourself. And, you know, I think the, you know, the old days of kind of news night behaviour and, you know, this idea that you had to be tough to sort of make it through the industry and, you know, the hard knocks and all that sort of 
bollocks basically it's it, it it is it's about it's about people that just like like having power over the people really just briefly before we move on actually paul just one final thing on this um i think we should sort of touch on the covid element of this story which is that people who are working for studio lambert who spoke to jim suggested that they deleted the covid app from their phone and stuff because they basically couldn't comply with the government regulations or suggestions during lockdown whilst doing the hours that were being asked of them and the production practices that were being asked of them separately to that jake Cantor at deadline is reporting this week that figures from the bfi show that spending on high-end tv production was only down 11 percent last year which is obviously being seen as a success story for the industry but i just wonder whether we might hear more of these stories of people who just pragmatically and practically to do that job which they they want to do because they need the money and they can't be furloughed and they're freelanced are breaking the rules of the pandemic because that's the only way to they feel they can get it done well i hope it's an isolated case i mean clearly for any employer to advocate and tell an employee to delete that and to not observe the government guidelines is being completely irresponsible and you can never condone that and i think that's appalling if that indeed is true um it is, of course, difficult to balance not just, for example, you know, complying with the COVID-19 regulations, but all the other things in people's lives. You know, you've got family, you've got friends, you've got to sleep, you know, you've got to do everything else. But um, uh, I hope it's an isolated case. All right. We will be back with some more media news after this. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, welcome back to the Media Podcast. Emma Faraz and Paul are still with me. Uh, let's talk about advertising now and the airline that has had not one but two ads banned by the Advertising Standards Authority. Paul, tell us about this. Yeah, so this is Ryanair with their Jab and Go TV ad banned for encouraging COVID risk-taking. The ASA, the advertising watchdog, have said it encouraged the public to act irresponsibly when they'd received a coronavirus vaccination shot. And uh, may I just add a bit of personal testimony here. I had COVID-19 at the very beginning of January, and it is horrible. Um, and I've had a, a test too for immunity, and I've discovered I've got the antibodies. But of course, the point about that is it stops me getting it. It doesn't necessarily stop me transmitting it. So what this is about is about the selfish behaviour. It's a bit like not wearing a mask. I mean, not wearing a mask doesn't really affect you. It actually is selfish about somebody else to whom you might transmit. And this advert portrayed lots of young things all hanging out together by a pool, jumping in together, not wearing masks, looking like they'd been intimate. Yeah. And, and the point, I mean, the point about all this really, I think, is we don't really know, but it looks as though, look, vaccination's going well in the UK, which is great, but it's not going to stop you transmitting it. And the reality is, like flu, like measles, you know, uh, this is going to be with us the rest of our lives. It's probably going to be around the whole time. It's just going to be something we've got to live with and adapt to. So the, the risk is, you know, I've got my jab, right, everything now back to normal and I can go and do what I did before and that's the problem because that's not the way it's going to be so it's just portraying unfortunately and encouraging people to uh, have bad behavior I understand people wanting to book holidays 
gosh, we all want to get away and go somewhere. But it was just the manner in which they did this. And not untypical Ryanair. I mean, not always known for their responsible advertising or responsible policies. I guess it was more of the same, but it was definitely a step too far. And I'm glad the ASA stepped in because I think it was, was wrong. Did they step in too slowly, do you think, though, Emma? Because this ad launched on Boxing Day. This was trumpeted as a fast track ban but you know here we are in february hearing about it it's been on for a month it's outrageous i mean the whole thing is outrageous so cynical of ryanair just such a cynical move a to sort of exploit people that are desperate for 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 those cheap flights just desperate for a holiday and and the other thing is that right anybody that's flown on Ryanair will know that you know trying to, at the end they say in the ad you know oh you know you can always reorganise your flights that is not always the case with Ryanair it's really difficult to get replacement replacements for them and I just think it should have been stamped on the day after it went out basically because you do not put an advert like that out on Boxing Day when people are at home and they're all thinking oh my god wouldn't it be amazing to to be able to go on holiday with our mates and and go back to the sort of lifestyle we used to have it's just so deeply cynical it's awful. I mean do you think for us that if an ad therefore sort of references vaccines or the Covid pandemic but isn't a health advert you know is an advert for a supermarket or an airline or whatever it is but just references the situation we're in it should somehow have like an extra level of policing you know like a, an ad that would make a claim about the medical benefits of something or smoking or whatever. The first instance is this whole idea of COVID profiteering, which I think is really, really dangerous. And I think that we need to, you know, it's 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 obviously difficult being being reactive about it and getting it wrong, but we do need to kind of make sure that there are stronger consequences to the ideas that some companies are playing off the fears of of people or, or wanting to go on holiday or, you know, giving this misinformation into to sell a product. You know, that's a really, really serious situation. And and I think that a lot of companies who are greedy have seen this as an opportunity rather than a, a Thing that we need to kind of be more mindful about how we look after each other um and that is you know that's kind of the accusation here with, with Ryanair I, I think kind of wider to that is is that this is you could argue that if you're sitting in a, in a Ryanair boardroom you may be seeing this as a good thing more people are talking about Ryanair now than they were when that advert was out um and that's kind of the whole point of advertising there is a whole co- the whole industry based mm. around trying to get adverts banned and so more people are now talking about this and it's in the front of people's minds about wanting to go on holiday so do you honestly think that's what happened do you think this was out of the Paddy Power playbook? They actually thought we want to stir some stuff up. I, I don't know if that's what's happened, but I don't think that, you, that if you sit in a Ryanair boardroom right now, you think this is all bad news. I think that you're going, well, more people are talking about us than they were ever before. But what, what I guess what I'm trying to say is that this idea around COVID profiteering, where companies are trying to kind of jump on the uh, the insecurities of people. I mean, I, I was, and I don't, again, I don't know if this is, you know, typical or I'm just noticing it more, but the amount of gambling adverts that I'm seeing right now, for mm. me, it's exactly the same sort of thing, that people are sitting at home, that they're bored and it's it's exploitative. And, and I don't really know if the consequences are strong enough because banning an advert off television doesn't mean anything. And I'll tell you what, for, for, for free, as soon as this story broke, I hadn't seen the advert. I went straight on Twitter to try and watch it. And mm. now I've watched the advert and I'm sure a lot of people who read this story yeah. have done the same thing so the eyeballs on that advert have been much higher than they have been normally and we have to decide whether or not this is the right way of effectively policing when these things go wrong i do i do feel like they're targeting vulnerable people who don't have much money anyway um and and the thing about the gambling ads you're you're so right for us i mean i get so so pissed off when they go oh gamblers you know be be gambling aware and they do this useless little social message at the end about how about how bad gambling is. And yet there's so many of those ads on at the moment. It's just appalling. But that is all ASA compliant, isn't it, Paul? And commercial television does depend on that revenue to survive. I mean, is now the time to say we want to cut the meagre amount of adverts that there are in half? Yeah, no, look, absolutely. I mean, there's a real problem with brands not advertising because with retail closed, of course, they're not going to advertise. I think what's interesting about the Ryanair thing too is the fact that they didn't apologise, that they actually said, and their statement was that in their view, the ads were not out of step with government goals, and they were designed to be uplifting and encouraging viewers to consider a brighter future. And they were showing people holidaying in their social bubble, and there were no requirements to be shown wearing face masks. I mean, the trouble is that, um, it's, as as Sir Faraz says, I mean, the the guidelines really rely on responsible 
uh, behavior by advertisers and clients. And this is an example where technically they follow the rules, but it does not actually comply with what we expect and has widely been seen with 2,370 complaints as being inappropriate. Um, I think it does require, therefore, a review of not only the penalties, but also the process for approval, which in this case clearly hasn't really worked. Okay, on to the press next. And Archant has sold the New European uh, as a management buyout, Paul. Uh, tell us who's involved. Well, this is very interesting. Um, this is a consortium with a whole bunch of very high-profile people, notably Mark Thompson, former Director General of the BBC, former Chief Executive of the New York Times, Lionel Barber, uh, the former editor of the Financial Times. Um, there's Matt Kelly there, who's the Daily Miller executive, who led the fundraising executive. There's various uh, investment bankers, VCs, and some big, big names on here uh, who've decided to buy this uh, publication out. And um, well, fascinating because uh, it's the first time we've seen for many a year serious money and serious people going behind uh, a publishing property in the UK um, in a market which has proved to be you know, incredibly difficult and has seen uh, redundancies and consolidation and job cuts and retrenchment. And here they are investing in a new publishing property. So the big question, I guess, is whether this is going to be a business or whether this is the train set for these individuals. Yeah. I mean, if it was a terrific business, Emma, then you'd imagine that Archant would have wanted to keep it. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think at a time when newspaper sales are just falling through the floor and also we're now post-Brexit, a paper that was set up specifically to to talk about Brexit and was meant to have only four editions originally, I think, I find it fascinating that these guys would put their money into it. I mean, they must know something we don't know, don't you think? I mean, I don't know. It's it's completely bizarre to me because um, you just think, you know, surely, I mean, even I've stopped buying papers a lot, you know. I, don't, I just don't, I don't really buy them anymore. And I used to be very, you know, every weekend I'd buy them. So um, it does make me wonder if they know something we don't. Well, I suppose for us, you know, let's look at the business model. Uh, they were profitable by week three, which... Presumably is because it costs £3 a copy and has quite an affluent readership. Uh, it had a full-time staff of just three people um, and, and piggybacked on a lot of Archant's um, infrastructure, I suppose. And it came out weekly. So it's actually, I mean, we call it a newspaper and say it's good news for newspapers, but really it's more like the New Statesman or the TLS, isn't it? I, don't, I mean, I don't think it's I, I don't think it's weird at all. I, I think this is actually a really shrewd move by the people that are involved in it. Um, and I think that when you look at what Mark's done at, Mark, as if he's a mate of mine, when you look at what Mr. Thompson has done at, at the New York Times and, and kind of extending that brand to being more than just a print paper, um, being a podcast company, being a, you know, a food company, being a online video company, it's, it's become uh, a brand that's bigger than just a print and I, I imagine that the similar thing is going to be looked at here you know there is a, a growing amount of uh, media outlets that are serving let's say the other side of the bait right now you know you've got news gb that's about to launch um you know there's there's news there's there's chatter about rupert murdoch launching his own radio station in this space obviously talk sport and talk news as um uh, has has been doing uh, bits in in that side of the conversation, LBC, etc. And and actually, I I think that there might actually be a vacuum that's currently filled by the Guardian, who have done very very well in in the kind of centre left and left space. Um, and I think that there may well be a, 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 a space for um, more content in that world. And if the New European is doing a, a decent brand when it comes to a print publication, the argument is is that it could do the same thing as a as a podcast network, as a, a video broadcast network. Um, and and I think that if you can extend that that reach beyond just a, a three pound a week uh, investment and actually allow people to feel like they're continuing to be part of that conversation, um, you know, people feel like they are flag waving Europeans now in a way that they didn't before the Brexit uh, Brexit vote. And and if you can capitalise on that, then that to me seems like a sensible business model. Okay, sticking with the press for just a moment, and the Duke of Sussex has accepted an apology and some damages from associated newspapers. Uh, Emma, what were the allegations and which paper published them? It was Mail on Sunday and they were they were alleging that Prince Harry had turned his back on, on his regimental loyalties and duties. Uh, as soon as he left for America, he dumped his regiment and his army, his army obligations and, uh, and is just, yeah, not interested anymore. And, and that is provably false, which they've now admitted and paid out. It was Mail Online as well. So it was both titles that printed similar articles. For us, since the Duke and Duchess of Sussex left the royal fold, 
we've seen a shift which we've been following on this show as to how they deal with the press um suing the mail on sunday uh, starting their own podcast do you foresee a time when the british press might view harry and Meghan as too litigious to write about not worth the risk. No, I mean, look, they they sell papers. Like you know, the, the reality is that the, the whether you call it the scandal or the the, the firestorm that's that's around that that fact that you know people have left the royal family um, after getting married. It's it's a you know I think Piers Morgan's column that he's out today is is about bashing Prince Harry again because it's an easy thing to get clicks to, um, and and I think that that will as long as that that continues that will outweigh any risk about liable claims. They just be you know get lawyers on it that are more careful about what's being written. Um, I, I think that like the the whole issue around Meghan and Harry is that they've they've successfully, as in the press, in particular the printed press, have successfully turned into a subject that every time you complain about them, it, it gets eyeballs. And and if that continues and, and audiences are continue to, to kind of read those articles, they're going to continue to find stories and print stories about how scandalous it is that Meghan's wearing this or has said that, or as, you know, Harry is saying this about the royal family. You know, if, if we continue to lap it up and and audiences continue to, to, to click on those stories, they're going to continue to print them. Yeah, but the thing used to be, Paul, I mean, I remember being taught this in a newsroom, basically, is you can sort of write whatever you like about the royals because they don't sue. And the reason behind that, the logic behind that, was the royals don't sue because if they did started suing for the things that weren't true, then that would underline what was really true that you'd printed that they hadn't sued you about. So it's better that they don't get involved. That's the danger for the Sussexes, isn't it? Suddenly you're going to be thinking, well, why didn't they sue over that one? Yeah, absolutely. Therefore, that must be true. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm with Faraz, really. Um, I think this is going to uh, continue. I mean, in a way, um, they're no longer part of the royal family. Therefore, it's open season in many ways. I suspect, though, there's probably some pressure coming from the palace because although they're not members of the royal family, they're still sort of seen as being, you know, of that sort of dynasty, aren't they? And therefore, there will be some damage to the royal family. And I think, therefore, um, they've got to be aware of that because, yes, they've distanced themselves from the royal family they're no longer part of it but they're still not you and me are they all right let's talk about radio now and uh for as you're going to have to tell me how to pronounce DJ Tinny. Is it Tinny or Tiny? It's Tiny. So Tiny used to be, um, he's, he's, he's famous for, uh, uh, well, he's famous for being a, a good DJ, but also being Stormzy's tour DJ. And now he's been dumped from Capital Extra. Why? So my understanding of the story is, is that he was sending, he, uh, people would send him records to play on the radio show. And, uh, and he was like, yeah, cool. I'll play this on my show. But if you, if you put some money in my bank account and, uh, and it was basically a, you know, what was then known as, um, as as payola or pay for play, um, which is effectively you know you'll you'll get some uh, you'll get some some tracks on put on my radio show and uh, and and as a result you'll get the the PRS money for you know it going on radio and and a, a plugs and promotions for, for being on playlist etc. If if you you know scratch my back and and that has been uh, been found out and people called it out and and as a result he's been he's been fired from the station. Yeah, so an email was leaked, Emma, showing that he was charging someone who wanted their record played 200 pounds did that email surprise you what i thought what i found really it didn't surprise me at all what i found really interesting about this is i don't think he i genuinely don't think he he thought he was doing anything wrong because if you if you think about the world that i mean certainly my teenage sons operate in where they're watching youtube everything is sponsored everything that they watch on on youtube is sponsored by somebody and it's and it's very obviously sponsored, or it's quite subtly sponsored, or it's product placement, or whatever. And um, I'm always talking to them about certain people that they follow on YouTube and about why they won't do telly and blah blah blah. And their response is, "Well, why on earth would they do telly? You get paid really shit money if you do telly. You, you know, these guys are millionaires, and they are millionaires through sponsorship and product placement. And therefore, somebody like DJ Tiny wouldn't see any." I don't. I gen, I mean, I may be wrong, but I, my assumption is he just didn't see anything wrong with it. He just thought it was like sponsorship or product placement, or that's his, my assumption. I may be being naive. His statement on Twitter doesn't say that he didn't realise he did anything wrong. He said on Twitter, "I was given an incredible opportunity within radio, and carelessly and irresponsibly took advantage of my position. I take full responsibility for my actions and fully accept the consequences as a result. I'm very sorry to everyone this has affected." and to those I've let down. So, Paul, that statement does imply he knew what he was doing. But I'm interested in what Emma says. I mean, if you're global, which owns Capital Extra, and he didn't know what he was doing, if if that's a possibility, 
it does make you think corporately they have a responsibility when they're getting club DJs to be radio presenters to tell them a bit about what's in the Ofcom code. Well, it's incredible to me that someone could go on the air and not be aware of the Ofcom code and not have been talked to about it by their line manager. I mean, to me, that's unbelievable. Um, I just go back to my days at um, Radio 1 when I was um, in charge of the playlist on Radio 1. In those days, we had 19 million listeners and I always offered incentives much greater than £200 to play a record on Radio 1, I can assure you. But of course, never did this and never would do it because, of course, you're uh, breaching the editorial integrity of this. I mean, if you're a DJ, your job on air is to play things that you think are good for people, not things that have been paid to be there. And there's a big difference between curating something and playing it for a reason because you think your listeners are going to enjoy it, we're going to turn them on to something and getting money, which is, um, you know, 200 quid, not very much money, really, to pay a record. It shows a lack of integrity by him, I think, in a really, really bad way. And also complete lack of lack of, of judgment. And and frankly, I, I think it's uh, appalling. I, I think he should be um, uh, treated much more strictly. That said, this has been, um, there's a great book, if you want to hear about the, read about the history of this, there's a great book called Hitmen Power Brokers and Fast Money Inside the Music Business, a very famous book by Frederick Dannon in 1990, talking about payola in the United States. The Ofcom code is very clear. You talk about sponsorship, Emma. The point about sponsorship is that you need to know when something is paid for and when it's editorial. And that's the key to the Ofcom code, understanding when it's paid for, when there's a commercial relationship, and when it's actually um, editorial. Okay, well, let's see what happens. I mean, for as Paul is saying that perhaps uh, DJ Tiny should become down harder on. Um, I mean, we don't know, by the way, if anyone ever paid this £200. This might have been the one time he asked for it. But if he's made five grand on the side whilst he's been doing this show, should he be paying it back? So, look, listen, I, I think that there's a, there's a, there's a number of things. That I, I agree with Paul in, in some parts. I agree with Emma in some parts. I, I think that there's a, there's a number of things at play here. The... the the reality is that the only person that has been reprimanded about this has been Tiny. Like, there's nothing about what you know what happens to Capital Extra, about what happens to Global, about you know whether what they're you know clearly if if what if what Paul is saying is true, there is a problem with the training processes that are put in place for presenters that go on air, and yet none of that is being discussed. You know, the the station hasn't been fined, and and when it comes to Payola, they're the people that should be fined, but you know they they somehow managed to conveniently wash their hands about it, and there's a there's another DJ that's that's been flung out of a of a mainstream broadcaster and, and thrown back onto the heap and and I think that that's um that's problematic if, if everything that's been said is true that you know you get told all of these things and uh and and he willfully broke those rules I'm I'm not you know I, I think that we we would need a proper investigation rather than just take global's word for it that that's what happened you know and and I think that what Emma's saying is is absolutely true this is a generation of people who have had to make their own way they've had to hustle they've had to get get their own careers going um and and this may well be part of it and the lines are significantly more blurred than what they were when we grew up in broadcasting because the 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 access to audiences is so much easier so if you're kind of saying whereas previously you would be taken out to dinners and you'd be wined and dined and you know to get that kind of one bit of promotion on tv or radio that was the normal path and no one criticized that back in the day that's not the case now it's much more transactional as to how you get yourself onto a playlist or how you get yourself into into a record box of a dj or, or or get the the nod from a from a feature from from an artist and and that's how people see stuff it's it's that association it's those collaborations that will make you famous and that will break you and 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 djs like tiny kind of see that as their worth and see that as what they do as a career um and and the lines are so significantly blurred that i don't think people do know what the cut and dry rules are i think the rules are very clear for us sorry i think you're completely wrong about that the rules are very very clear you read the ofcom code it's incredibly clear and it's your responsibility if you're going on an Ofcom registered station to comply with those rules. And you need to be aware. Now, if he wasn't trained by Ofcom, that's a failure. Trained by Global, that's a failure by Global. I believe he was trained by Global. But we need to ask the question. Okay. Uh, let's go on to another radio story. And this is a presenter who I don't need to ask you for as how to pronounce his name, Simon Mayo. Uh, he is switching stations within Bauer from Scala to Greatest Hits. So he's going to be doing drive time now for them. Scala's an interesting one because it had a very big um, fanfare when it launched and and I'm I'm interested to know I mean obviously the Raja figures are all, all at sea at the moment because of what's happening with the pandemic and they're, they're slightly skewed but I'm, I'm interested to know how successful that launch has been Simon Mayer was one of the key faces of that and so him going I think is, is a big news story for the Scala and and uh, and and this kind of shuffling and moving of 
of presenters, uh, particularly more established presenters uh, between radio stations is, is going to continue. Um, you know, obviously, Virgin has had some significant scalps in, in the last few months. And, um, and and this is another one of that, of, of this roundabout continuing to go. I mean, you know, obviously, Simon May is, an, in, is a great broadcaster. It's interesting that he's gone from what was a classical music station to a more mainstream radio station. That suggests to me that there's a uh, that there's an identity issue around what it is that he broadcasts and is he just a, a talk radio host that you know plays records in between Simon um, is a great asset to Bauer and um, he left Radio 2 from the Drive Time show in maybe not the best way and that audience um, has declined quite significantly Radio 2 is also moving further down the age range getting younger and younger and so becoming increasingly people who like 60s, 70s, 80s music are not listening to Radio 2 because it's not playing so much and I think that now they've got the Greatest Hits Network, but it was not there when he joined for Scala. Uh, they've seen the opportunity. They put Mark Goodyear in the mornings, Simon Mayo on drive time. They're looking to absolutely get people back who would have listened to Simon Mayo on Radio 2 onto Greatest Hits Radio. And in their portfolio, they're seeing putting Simon onto Greatest Hits Radio is going to garner them more audience than they're going to get from Scala. To answer Francis's question about Scala Radio, we don't really know what the audience is. It's probably three or 400,000. It's very small. The potential for Greatest Hits Radio is much, much bigger. Greatest Hits Radio could have two or three million. So they're going to get a lot more value for Simon Mayer, who's not cheap, but he's good value, but he's more expensive. Put him on drive time and pull that radio to audience across. And I've had several people have emailed me actually and said, I'm going to follow Simon Mayo now to Greatest Hits Radio. And I think there'll be lots of people who will do that. In that two years, though, Emma, do you think people have actually just got used to Sarah Cox on Radio 2? Perhaps they found Richard Allenson on Magic or whatever it is and actually maybe some of his drive time audience isn't there anymore i think it's a brilliant move genuinely i think it's a, it's a really clever move and and radio 2 changing is you know these things inevitably change with the demographic of the listeners and and i think also the other thing that's been happening i don't know i mean uh, you know i'm not a radio expert in any way shape or form but radio in the same way that society has just women have are taking much more of a bigger role within radio now in terms of DJs and all of that stuff. And so the sort of slight feminization of radio too, and, um, and the sort of replacement of some of the sort of what were referred to as like dinosaurs is just a reflection in the audience really. So I think it's, it's great. I think all of that movement is, is, is brilliant. I mean, what it does mean is that things get more and more niche. So people aren't listening to a national station so much, which, you know, is a, is very just debatable whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Emma, your levels of enthusiasm have kept up admirably throughout your debut episode, but uh, perhaps you don't know what's about to come uh, because there is just time to squeeze in our legendary media podcast quiz. This week we're playing Have I Got a Newsreader for You? You'll hear three audio pictures slowly rotate in front of the camera to the sound of a swanny whistle. Buzz in when you spot the famous newscaster in question. Let's go. Here's picture number one. Which political fact machine that never sleeps is in the running for an RTS award? Faraz. Oh, Faraz. My hero. Poor King. John King. So he's, he's the guy that stood in front of a map throughout the whole of, elec- of this election and actually previous election cycles before. Um, he, you know, obviously with the American election going on for days and days and days and days he uh, he was the one that kind of held our hand and glide and guided us through the the numbers in in uh, as, as we slowly saw the demise of donald trump and um uh, and and you know they, they cnn you know really do pull it out the bag when it comes to these nights and uh and yeah but they are massive- an american news network so i mean should he be nominated for a uk rts network presenter of the year award alongside clive Murray and victoria derbyshire bearing in mind you know the broadcast isn't intended for this audience yeah, I mean, look, I mean, what I'm saying to you is that it's the network that I watch for the American election above all the other networks. And and I don't think I'm the only one. I think there are a lot of people in the UK that move to CNN to follow okay, the American Okay, we get the picture. Election. Emma, would you be pissed off if you were representing a UK broadcaster and a US broadcaster was up for the same prize? I don't know. It's interesting, isn't it? It's a very... My initial reaction was like, yay, he, he was amazing. He was like a marathon runner. He was brilliant. And then, and then yes, and then I thought about it and thought, oh, hang on, is this just more... American cultural imperialism trying to, you know, we're already, we're already sort of imperialized by, by American telly and do we need any more of it? But you know what? I just think it was such an extraordinary event. 
you know, really such an extraordinary event that so many British people were were obsessed with and tuned in for that he des- he deserves his nomination. Absolutely, he does. OK, here is picture number two. Which undisputed king of interviews has hung up Paul. his trademark braces for the last time? Paul. Uh, this is Larry King. Uh, yes. Not Paul King, not John King. Larry King, <laughs> um, who's been on the aforementioned CNN for 25 years, interviewing everyone from the president to Miss Piggy. Correct, yes. Larry King, who died at the age of 87. Uh, for a bonus point, does anyone know how many editions of Larry King Live he presented? Paul. Ball. 6,000. That's, I mean, it's not even worth putting out to pasture. That is close enough. Yeah, 6,120 across 25 years. If you haven't seen it, then Google Larry King DuckTales because it's one of the greatest interview moments of all time. Um, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, okay, you don't get a point for that, but fine. Uh, here's picture number three. Which new channel is soon to be home to a man from the sun? Oh, I mentioned this earlier, Faraz. Faraz. Dan Wooten has gone, is... has gone over to, uh, yes. to be one of their hosts, which is uh, delightful. I can't wait for that to happen. It's going to be... Uh, a rip-roaring fun time. Um, if you can't tell, I won't. He's also got a, a slot, slot for Mail Online too, hasn't he? I mean, it's quite interesting, I guess, to replace his role at uh, News UK. He had to find a job that was both print and on air, and he has. I'm sure he's very proud of himself. Okay, so Paul and Faraz are on two points each. That does mean, Emma, it would be helpful if you just didn't answer this tie-break question, but feel free to buzz in if you do know the answer. And it's this. Which international news channel has lost its licence thanks to its close links to China's ruling party? Oh, so Paul. Paul. Russia Today? No, Faraz. I'm going to say CGNT. It's close enough. It's CGTN, uh, which has lost its broadcast licence. Ofcom thinks it is ultimately controlled by the Chinese Communist Party, which disqualifies it from holding a licence, which means, (laughs) Faraz, you are the winner of today's media podcast quiz. Congratulations. Uh, With which I say thank you very much to uh, all of my guests, uh, Paul Robinson, Faraz Osman, and Emma Hindley. A very uh, encouraging debut, Emma. It was great. Oh, thank you. It was lovely. I really enjoyed it, actually. Do come again. Uh, And uh, you should come again, too. If you like the show, uh, then subscribe to the show using your podcast app of choice. Just search for The Media Podcast with Ollie Mann and hit subscribe. And if you are enjoying what we're up to here on The Media Podcast and you want to help us keep making it, visit themediapodcast.com slash donate and select an amount to keep us going all year round. If you make a donation, even a small one, you could have a future episode episode dedicated to you. Uh, I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Peter Price. The Media Podcast is a Rethink Audio and PPM production. And until next time, bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.